Uh, so in the part one of this episode, we talked a lot about all of the things that Halloween Havoc did wrong. I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, how great the first Halloween Havoc is. I, I would go as far as to say it's one of my favorite WCW pay-per-views um, from top to bottom. I think it's just like a fun show with a fun gimmick. Um, but we uh, we also kind of skirted around some of the meatier parts of the actual viewing experience of Halloween Havoc because we wanted to dedicate an entire part of the like a good chunk of time to talking about some of the more specific crazier matches in Halloween Havoc history and moments and we wanted to spend a real good chunk of time on Hulk Hogan's legacy with Halloween Havoc Uh, but I wanted to start with what to me is the quintessential Halloween Havoc match uh, which is not the Thunderdome match I think that's actually like a good match so it's hard to like saddle it with uh, a kind of emptiness that watching the Chamber of Horrors match gives you. The Chamber Chamber of Horrors match is not just a un like a uninteresting match to watch. It's also a poorly designed, poorly executed match that for a TV production company should have been much much better like prepared to do it's one of those matches where you watch it and it's kind of embarrassing to be a wrestling fan while you're watching it and it's the first thing on the card it's like they wanted to get it out of the way as quickly as possible like they were embarrassed to present it they knew it was going to be a bunch of horse shit and they were just like okay let's get this out of the way quickly and like let people fucking reset as many times as possible between then and the main event which once again, like if you're throwing a themed show, like the big, if you're doing a Halloween show, the Halloween match, it doesn't have to be the main event, but it should be deep on the card. It should be an important match and it'd be something that you're fucking proud about presenting people. And they just weren't. And it's all the way around. It's a, just a bad product. Like I said, there's a part where Cactus Jack and the people in the match for the most part are trying. It's just, they have nothing to work with. Uh, it's uh, so it's El Gigante, Sting, and the Steiner Brothers, which uh, minus um, Giant Gonzalez is a really like I would totally watch a six man tag with Sting and the Steiner Brothers versus Abdullah the Butcher, which farts, farts. Um, watch out! The Di- don't get any of those farts on you, or if you do, maybe <laughs> wash your hands. <laughs> Uh, the Diamond Stud, who is, of course, Scott Hall in weirdly high-waisted but really high-cut trunks. Um, Cactus Jack and Big Van Vader, which, like, Scott Hall, Cactus Jack, and Big Van Vader as a three-man team is fucking awesome. This match is dog shit. Actually, no, 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 no. I think the dog kennel from hell match is better than this match. So this and that match literally had dog. Shit. Yeah. So this match isn't is beneath dog shit. Is that fair to say? Is this the worst non Hogan match in WCW history? You know, I, I kind of alluded to this in our first episode, but anytime there's like an implied death as part of a wrestling match, it immediately has to get consideration for that worst of all time list. Especially like I love uh, 
Like uh, when, when they finally get Abby in the electric chair and Cactus Jack is like throwing the switch and then they're kind of looking at each other for a few minutes and Abby is like, is anything going to happen or should I just start selling? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like it, 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 it is. And then a bunch of fucking fireworks. Yeah, like, like way more than <laughs> seem safe. It's like original final deletion, like Jeff and Matt just shooting Roman candles at each other. <laughs> But in this case, Abdullah the butcher butcher is the dilapidated boat. Like <laughs> it's it's but it's fun. It's a fun shitty once it gets rolling to the shittiness. But it takes like ten minutes to get there. It, that that actually that match could have been like three minutes. I couldn't fucking tell you. <laughs> it is. Time. It's a twelve-minute match. It feels like a half an hour, but the let in the context of that, the last five minutes of that half hour. So I guess the last two minutes of the actual match, or whatever the fuck that proportion would be, is actually like fun-ish, kind of, sort of. Like once I think Sting gets busted open, like business picks up, but and and I, I think this is uh, something we should do for for these because uh, we 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 may be doing more of these episodes in the future. Um, is this match essential viewing to you? Because we kind of both uh, f- for this, we just kind of threw up a couple of matches from Halloween havoc. And I, I think this is an essentially a-, a match. You have to view to understand Halloween havoc. Um, are you inclined to agree or, and in a larger sense, like how Halloween havoc explains wrestling in particular is why I have this as an essentially, important match in terms of the history of wrestling yeah i think it's an important match when it comes to understanding how halloween havoc was maybe a really really strong concept but how they consistently just just missed the mark in a few key ways like right like you said all those names like other than Higante, but you can't be too picky right like all those names when you, when you have a multi-man match like it, those are all good workers those are all wrestlers that people care about uh, but then you like you put this big thing in the middle of the ring that they have to work around and you like change all the angles that they're used to working and you can't really run the ropes very well anymore and stuff. It's like you're just trying to make it hard for them. And I think that when bookers of all generations try to put together the sexy new gimmick match, I think so often what gets forgotten is is ease of doing it is like ease of ability to have a wrestling match uh using that stipulation in a way that makes sense and isn't just a burden and i think that that's the thing that halloween havoc never achieved they never created that thing that was the halloween havoc thing that wasn't some like unmanageable gimmick that dragged stuff down and that you had to hide early on the show so and i think that lack of clarity about what the fuck's going on one of the defining characteristics of this match to me is the fact that in the beginning of the match jim ross doesn't know how long they have to wait before the chair comes down like so so for people who haven't seen the match go watch the match but it it what happens is it's the thunderdome so what it is is a big cage that is basically positioned where the hell in a cell cell is but instead of uh, a top on the cell it kind of comes up like the raptor fencing in jurassic park i think it would be that's a great analogy <laughs> that's like what they're dealing with uh and then so there's this open space at the top and in that open space, 
dropped a like mechanical arm attached to a electric chair. Like like an electric chair <laughs> from like an Ed Wood movie. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I very rarely laugh like that. That was uh <laughs> Sorry. That was embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> Sorry, this is the funniest, one of the fun... Like, this was why it's totally worth watching this match. Um, So, on the side of the cage, uh, now that they have this giant, in a separate, smaller cage, um, (laughs) electric chair, (laughs) they have, on the side of the cage, a gimmicked, I'm assuming... um, like old timey f- like breaker switch straight out of the fucking acne catalog <laughs> and at some point during the match there may it, have even been a lightning bolt drawn on it <laughs> it just falls <laughs> <laughs> Mick Foley is very concerned by it by the way he checks on that switch like a hundred times in the match and like Mick Foley's super professional about it. It's so <laughs> impressive how professional he is about it. Because <laughs> this end spot of the match is um, Rick Steiner suplexing Ab- Abdullah the Butcher into the chair and strapping him in. And what's supposed to essentially happen is Abdullah the Butcher is pushing Rick Steiner into the chair. And at that point, <laughs> Mick Foley climbs up the sorry. He climbs up the 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 cage. And um it Abdullah the Butcher is not the fleetest of foot or the most agile. Uh so and yes <laughs> fatal ar- arms, just big old fatal <laughs> arms. And it takes a really long time to um, get him strapped in. <laughs> so Mick Foley is literally just like standing on, like like hanging off of the cage with the fucking, the switch, just like waiting for a good two minutes for Abdul the Butcher to get strapped in so he can pull the fucking thing. But the gimmick is supposed to be that he inadvertently flips the switch for Abdullah. <laughs> The whole format of this podcast, the whole format of this podcast is just you trying to explain terrible wrestling matches in straight exposition. This is the new show. (laughs) It's the worst fucking thing I've... It's so... Oh, God, I'm, like, literally tearing up. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. Uh, And that's the first match of the (laughs) pay-per-view. I think that everybody, like there's all these people out there who there's just this like school of belief that like wrestling's gotta be live and everything's better live because when it's live, it's unpredictable, it's uncut, it's uncooked, it's raw. (laughs) But like not all wrestling needs to be live. And this match was a great example. (laughs) This was something that like maybe, (laughs) maybe you could have, you know, 
Uh, this show could have could have aired on tape delay. Okay, you could have boiler room matched the shit. And yeah, no exactly. Right. You could have you could have just like papered a crowd of professional seat fillers earlier in the day to come make sure you at least did the fucking finish so you could cut away to it. You know, at a key moment on the live feed. Oh, um, so yeah, that's the first match we wanted to talk about was, and and to me that that is why that match is essential viewing. It is it is maybe the worst good. It is the best so bad it's good match I can think of in wrestling because those are few and far between in that way. Where it's it, it, there's the TNA electric cage match. All of these electric, electrified cage gimmicks are all fucking terrible. And and this is like the er example of why it's why you should not pee in an electric fence. Don't whiz on the electric fence. Oh wait, 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 Nick. <laughs> uh, have you noticed how all electrified wrestling cages make the same sound? The same, like, the I same. think it's the Wilhelm scream of. Uh... It's, 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 I swear, I swear it's from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I swear it's sampled for the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I would not be surprised. Again, like, especially if it happened in WCW, there's a really good t- chance that, like, if it's from, you think it's from a movie, it's from a movie because it's Turner. Turner owned a bunch of films and shit. Like, they had Kevin Nash as Oz. That, that was on this same show. Yeah. <laughs> he re- he was replaced by Abdullah the Butcher, I believe, in that match. He was originally supposed to be in that match. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, we said, right, that um, at the beginning of this, this little fun excursion we're doing, uh, that this is the second worst match in Halloween Havoc history. Because uh, um, the worst match... I personally think in wrestling history, having watched it tonight, is Hulk Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior in the semi-main event of the 1998 Halloween Havoc. Yeah, I, I alluded to it a little bit in, uh, in, in the last episode that I couldn't believe they went back to the same building after burning the fucking town like that. Holy smoke. It's really sad because, like, uh, WrestleMania 6? WrestleMania 6 is, like, one of the great moments in Hulk Hogan's career. Like, him really showing what he was capable of. Not so much as an athlete, but in terms of everything else that a wrestler does. You know what I mean? It's really one of the triumphs of his career and one of the moments where he wasn't being that caricature of Hulk Hogan that's so easy to make fun of. You know what I mean? But... But it's it's just so sad to see the contrast between between that WrestleMania match and the Halloween Havoc match. And it's something that had been building for a couple of years at that point. Because when Hulk Hogan comes to WCW, he completely takes over the main event. Uh, so for four years in a row, from 94 to 90, so 94, 95, 96, 97... He main events all of the Halloween Havocs. Uh, the first one is a st- the the steel cage match with Hogan and Flair, and then you have uh, Hogan versus the Giant. And these are can we can we just pause for a second and say that like 
to anybody who was a wrestling fan in the 80s, if you said Hogan and Flair in a cage, that like people would have told you that that would have been like the best and most anticipated match of all time. Like not that many years before it happened. So, so even though it's not like a terrible match when you watch it, it's like, it's, it's a match. And like that in and of itself is so disappointing because it's like Hogan was like known for the cage matches in the WWF. Flair came from Crockett, which was known for the cage matches. And then they just have this like, yeah, they have a cage match. Yeah. I like how, and it's good. You stopped me before I got to the next match. Uh, cause, um, yeah, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, totally, you can both totally see why they didn't main event WrestleMania eight and how they needed to rate main event WrestleMania eight. They both didn't have the chemistry that you really want from that kind of feud. Like I, I think Flair was too much better a performer for Hogan to go over. So I don't think the dynamic totally worked. Like, I think Ric Flair was every bit as physically charismatic as Hogan beyond the, like, look that he had. And Flair had a great look, but Hogan has one of the great looks in the history of wrestling, uh, especially, like, in terms of when his hair was less... uh, Plastic. Conspicuous. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, like... Flair has every bit of the charisma is a 10 times better worker. It is not close. And he has the fit, like, that's why it never worked. But at the same time for WrestleMania eight, that was the only time it was going to work and get over the way that it needed to, to like propel a new, weirdly a new era of wrestling forward. Cause you would at least have like pulled off that bandaid at a perfect time to do so. But instead, they did it. Um, they did it a couple of times, and this is one of just like a part of a series of Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan matches. And it is just like Mr. T is the special guest referee. It's a it's a bit of a bummer of a match. It's like you said, they really should have had better chemistry. But I think they both suffered for from being the person who a territory or a promotion was built around for so long. Like both of them had to have kind of a patterned match. Like Hulk Hogan had the Hulk Hogan match, and that was because Hulk Hogan had to wrestle a million different opponents, and he had to like do the same Hulk Hogan shtick against all of them to give the people their money's worth. Ric Flair, being a heel mostly, you know what I mean, also kind of a popular character, baby-faced depending on where you were, uh, but, but Ric Flair also had their pattern match, but his match was always about like making the opponent, right? Like we've talked about the, the horseman philosophy in the past about making the job guy. So, like, you would think that this guy, his match is all about, you know, his offense and getting himself over. And then you have this other guy, and and his match is all about, you know, bumping all over the place for the other guy and making him look good. Like, you would think those people would gel so well, but I think they both were so used to being the person that had to wrestle everybody that, like, when they finally got to the point in their career that they were with someone who was, like, a quote-unquote equal, they'd kind of forgotten how to do it. Like, Ric Flair has his his legendary feuds with, uh, you know, Steamboat and Funk in 89, like we alluded to a little bit earlier. But, like, then after that, we get a really different version of Ric Flair. There's, like, the WWF thing, and then he's just kind of professionally playing Ric Flair. And it was the same deal with Hulk Hogan. He was at a later stage in his career where he was just professionally being Hulk Hogan. 
and, and they were both just kind of like set in their way of doing their acts. And even though their acts should have been complimentary, they, they just weren't. It's like the, it really should have worked and it didn't. Those matches aren't fun to watch, honestly. I, you know what I mean? I, 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 of the various matches that they've, they've had, I just don't find them fun to watch. The problem is Hogan is the heel in that relationship. He's like the big, good-looking, blonde guy who, like, rakes the back and does four moves. And, like, Flair busts his ass every match. And, yeah, he's the dirtiest player in the game, but he's not that much dirtier than Hogan is. And it's his hometown. Like, to me, it makes no sense the way that they had Flair lay down for Hogan. None. It doesn't make a lick of sense. And yet they were just like, sorry, he's that, that's what works for him, brother. And it's just like, it's, it. this is something we talk about with WCW all the time. The original sin of WCW was selling out every single way that they could consistently. And Hogan is like the epitome of that. He is the like, we don't care about anything other than making as much money as possible in this given day at this given time. And I, I feel like you see from Flair to the, the Hogan Flair match in 94 is like, it's again, it's, it's Hogan and Flair. So it's not bad, but it's just not at all, even remotely what it should be. The Hogan giant match which has a monster truck sumo match prelim is like in which which somebody somebody dies. dies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Dies. And then is resurrected. And his name is not Jesus. And I'm a, did he, did he live? Did he fall on the lakeside or the parking lot side? And then Bischoff goes, I don't know. What's the difference? (laughs) And fucking Heenan just drops his pen and buries his face. And he's like, are you seriously telling me you don't understand the difference between someone falling fucking 50 feet into water and someone falling 50 feet into a parking lot? (laughs) Sorry. If the Chamber of Horrors is like that perfect movie, like that that so bad it's good movie, it's it, this is the best way to put it. If Chamber of Horrors is Sharknado, the sumo monster truck match is Sharknado four. Like <laughs> it's self aware of its not just its stickiness, but its shittiness. And it wants to escape both of those, but has given up the will to do so. Yeah, it's like the uh, the the original version, the kind of the Woody Allen version. Uh, sorry, trigger warning, Woody Allen reference. Uh, the the older version of Casino Royale, where like it, it's it's kind of a James Bond movie, but it's also being a parody of a James Bond movie. But then like in the third act, those two aspects of the movie just both completely fall apart. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's definitely got that vibe going on where uh, like it's, it's, it's a parody of itself. Uh, but then it forgets that and tries to play it serious. Yeah. Like he try. So I'm not going to go into a big in depth explanation of how we got to um, a Yeti, a guy who is called a Yeti, but is actually a mummy. Um, frozen in ice. Frozen in ice. <laughs> Plastic ice from the Astro Crag. 
<laughs> the previous episode of television had literally ended on a cliffhanger with him beginning to break out of the ice and then like we had to wait until the big show to, to actually see what had broken out of the uh, ice. So- Great television. <laughs> Classic episodic stuff. <laughs> so what pops out of the ice is um Super Ninja? Was that who it was? Uh no, it is um it is a man dressed as a mummy who is referred to as a Yeti. Uh spelled Yeti. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, base god Tony Schiavone. Um, <laughs> and he and the giant, um Eiffel Tower, I think would be the best way to describe uh, what they do to Hulk Hogan, uh, who is dressed in black and is starting, ironically enough, his weird, like, goth kid trying out, trapping at Hot Topic phase of his career right before he goes and joins. Like, he, within uh, basically a way less than a year, he joins the NWO. Uh, it's it's both, like, you know, it, less so than... Um, the Chamber of Horrors match. It is a ma- a watch, a watch worth matching, a math a match worth watching because of its like historical kitsch value. But it's also super depressing because here's a, a secret: uh, 1995, the gi- gi- version of the Giant is like an incredible athlete that could have made Hogan look like a million dollars. And they just decided to completely forego that for this insane gimmick sumo monster truck match where they fight each other on a rooftop and then they get into a fist fight after the sumo match that Hogan wins. And in the ensuing chaos, the giant falls off a building and like Jesus Christ himself is resurrected to fight Hulk Hogan. And then he bear hugs him. And then at some point, I think Hogan gets disqualified. And because of a clause in the match's contract, the giant becomes champion. Makes sense to me. <laughs> they, they do the, uh, the Michael Keaton Batman spot from the first Batman movie where, uh, where, where Jack Nicholson at the beginning, before he becomes the Joker, he's like, uh, they're running it on the catwalk. And he starts to slip and like Batman shoots out his hand to like save him, but he accidentally pushes him. And then he goes back further and then Batman's like leaning in, like grab my hand or whatever. You know what? I always think of the Michael Keaton Batman. And then Hulk Hogan's like mock horror, or not mock horror, but uh, badly active yeah. horror at realizing that he's just killed somebody <laughs> is, is really something to behold. I will say though, even more so than the monster truck showdown uh, on the roof of Cobo Hall, brother. Uh, even before that, though, that one of my favorite parts of the show is the vignettes that were used to set it up. Like you said, this is when Hogan was first starting to wear the black because the the dungeon of, of doom had uh, really gotten to him and really had him, you know, questioning what it really meant to to be the, to be Hulk Hogan. But I mean, there's some there's some frigging great, you know. Uh, Sullivan, my son, tonight the moon has allied with the eye of the black cat of Jupiter, and the dungeon of Doom's monster truck will bring final destruction to that pest of a hero, Hulk Hogan. Ah, yes, master, tell me more! 
The monster truck will engage with the power of Hulkamania and force it off the roof of Kobo Hall, forever destroying the last beam of hope and darkness shall reign the universe. The only hope is for people to go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. <laughs> yes, master! That's it. That's the whole thing. Go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and give us your money. <laughs> uh, which brings us, of course, to uh, actually the one sincerely good Hogan match of this run, which is him versus Savage. Like that match, because Savage is one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, is like a legit good match, great heat, the crowd's into it. Like it, it, it really works. The ending works on some level, and it ends with Roddy Piper coming out and cutting like a pretty good promo. Like that promo works really well for me. And the fact that he like takes Hogan's title works really well for me. And the fact that he keeps talking shit to the giant who, Oh, by the way, is now a member of the NWO, but not the member. I think he's the member of the NWO B team. No, that's the next year. He's the member of the NWO B team. Um, he, no, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is the next year after the, the, um, no, two years. Sorry, because there's the Roddy Piper match that they should have had, I don't know, like literally the next month <laughs> between <laughs> him and, and Hogan uh, that they have the next fucking year uh, in a non-title steel cage match. But I think on some level, the Hogan Savage 1996 um Havoc match is like one of Hogan's better title defenses period. Like outside of like your big time WWF ones. I think it's one of his best. Cause like, he, first of all, he comes out in the worst toupee I have ever seen <laughs> the worst thing. It is like, it's like if a, white dog came up to you and was a Dalmatian, you'd be like, you just painted those spots on yourself. I don't know why you'd be accusing a dog of painting spots on himself, but like some, like clearly something is different about you. It is that level of just like, what the fuck are you? You have been bald for like 15 years and, it's like, and now you have spiky hair. And if you were suddenly going to get hair, why would you get Dan Spivey's hair from 1989? <laughs> Boo! Or maybe like Sting's methy brother. Surfer Sting. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Of course. Um, it, but yeah, other than that, it, like, it, it really works. Uh, and of course, like Hogan gets the toupee ripped off, which is like a really fun bit of meta like ribbing of Hogan and it's a Hogan that is relishing being a bad guy. He loves it. And there's also a brilliant exchange um, between Hogan, uh, sorry, between Shivani, Dusty and Heenan about how Heenan was basically right the entire time about Hogan. They don't ever admit it. And, and, and Heenan keeps on being like, well, I was totally right about it. 
And they're they're all just like agreeing with what he's saying without acknowledging that yes, in fact, you were right the entire time. Hulk Hogan was a piece of shit. You're not wrong. You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's like to me, if you want to see this match is an essential match for me because if you want to see what Hulk Hogan, why Hulk Hogan worked is how like why he still worked as a heel that match is a perfect example uh and you said it best uh through text um he's more charming to me in heel mode because he's less of a liar like he's really honestly who he is when you're watching him and he has that like the picaresque thing we've talked about during the slobs versus snobs episode of being a bad guy, but like a charming ne'er-do-well that is trying to get over, but is being like coy in a way that is really obvious, if that makes sense. Like the the coy to the point of, of like, that's part of the joke is that you're like almost flirting, like overtly flirting with the idea of being a just like over-the-top bad guy. Yeah, definitely. For me, it always goes back. We talked about this in the archives. Um, the Vash at the Beach promo, when he first turns, there's the line, and I always fucking misquoted. I'm always like two words off. But there's the line where people are throwing the garbage in there, and he's going, like, you see all this garbage here in the ring? Well, that represents the fans perfectly or whatever. It's all that line. Like, you can, you can see Hulk Hogan having fun, not having to hold in his contempt for what he's doing. I think that that was part of what made heel hogan as you say kind of fun and picaresque like he is a a dangerous destructive character in a new way because he's tapped into his true feelings or he seems to tapped into his true feelings of, of thinking he's better than everybody and you know not not caring about saving their feelings in order to get their money anymore it really was a that's what made it such a brilliant heel turn and once again it all comes back to like the best stuff's always real yes and he's he is a sincerely great heel. Like, I think he's, obviously, I'm not going to say he wasn't a great babyface. He's one of the most over babyfaces of all time. He, Maybe the definitive babyface. He is like a headline A-list actor as a face. He is an Oscar-winning thespian as a heel. Like, there's, there's almost, like, pathos to him in a way that there just isn't weirdly with the face version of Hogan, if you're not inclined to believe his bullshit, where like you can see Hogan's insecurities when he's a bad guy. Cause he kind of lets them like appear cause he's much more vulnerable as a bad guy. Cause he's constantly playing up like what a man he is and all of this shit. It's a really interesting character study as a bad guy and like i said this match in particular and just like the the toupee is the is the quintessential example of this of just like you can see his insecurities insecurities about losing his edge in terms of the fans how that like broke him apart inside and turned him into hollywood hulk hogan yeah definitely and i think that he was very smart and ahead of his time in in ways and that i think that he understood too, uh, increasingly in the 90s, like what a certain portion of the fans like thought that he was. And I think he did a great job into tapping into those 
insecurities, as you said, that like people who read dirt sheets uh, knew about or had read about or thought that he had. And I mean, at the end of the day, he turned that into a great wrestling character to like, what is the heel at the end of the day? Like the heel is a coward and the heel is a liar. You know what I mean? And, and he knows that he's not quite good enough. That's why he's got to do all this other stuff. But like, it, you know, it, it would be the, he was one of the last heels. He did it after the Piper match. I'm not sure if it was this one or they had another match at Fall Brawl. It might've been that one. I think it was. Uh, but uh, like he, he lost to Piper and then he comes out the next night on Nitro and he just cut a promo saying that he beat Piper. <laughs> like that he's, you know, he's the insecure liar. He really stripped himself down both to what is the core of a wrestling heel and what is the core of what people have heard about me that is shitty? Yeah. You know, and, and when he combined those two things, he really created something beautiful out of a lot of shittiness. Yeah. Um, which, uh, whatever the inverse of that is the way I would describe. So, like I said, after a very good match, a totally fun, great uh, Savage Hogan match, one of their better ones, and they've had some pretty good ones. Um, they, um, sorry, one second. Um, Piper comes out. They have a really great, and it includes the famous line of, uh, would they wouldn't have, do you think they would have loved you so much if they didn't hate me so much? Um, which is kind of, and Hogan's weird and conciliatory when Piper comes out and is like, we ran together. We had good battles. We made a bunch of money. Like, can't we just let bygones be bygones? And Piper's having none of it. And he, like, steals his title and, you know, makes some kind of homophobic innuendo because it's Piper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's Piper. What's weird is that, I of course, I watched the main events. I started watching the Hogan main events specifically because I wanted to refresh my memory. And you have the end of the 1996 Halloween Havoc and then the 1997 Halloween Havoc if you do the main event of that show is what feels like the next logical match for both of them and it's not it's a year later almost to the day like they waited a year to do a match that they should have done and it's the same kind of concept with Ric Flair of like, you could have done this match if you did it the next month. The fact that you waited a year to do what, what you refer to as age in the cage was just the worst possible idea. And it's compounded by the fact that there are like 15 different types of stings in this match. They just start appearing. You get a sting and you get a sting. <laughs> now that reminds me of the uh, everybody's getting bees gif of that. <laughs> <laughs> so Piper's match is shitty, right? I think that's fair to say. But I think what makes it sincerely like a a, a terrible match, and I, I think out of the these matches that we've mentioned, this is the one I'm shakiest on it being uh, like an essential viewing kind of situation. It's not a title match. And that is the dumbest fucking thing possible. Like, why would you steal someone's title and beat them in a non-title match? Like, what? I, I understand that that's maybe interesting because you can prove you can beat them without. Oh, 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 wait, wait, Nick. I know, I know, I know, I know. What would? 
so you can go over. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he loses the match. He just, like, why? Oh, I thought you meant from Piper's perspective. Like, what's the incentive to even fucking do this match if it's not a title yeah. match? Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. No, and I, um, I mean, from, like, a storyline perspective, what is the point of that from, if you're promoting a show, why, like... I understand in the meta sense, what's the point of it? But to me, Piper doing that just like took the sales out of beating Hogan completely. It basically like, oh, you want to see Hogan lose? Okay, he's going to lose to an old guy, but he's not going to lose the title. So it's not even like you can take the title off of that old guy with another heel and then have one of Hogan or that heel turn babyface. You just have Piper beat him. That's it. And it's like, it's to me the quintessential, and it happens around the same time as the Starcade incident. It's like what made Hogan stop working as a heel after what was for a year or so an incredible run. It's that he, you now had to manufacture reasons why he could lose, but not be hurt by it in any way. There were no consequences or stakes for anything he was doing. Looking back on it too, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, I, I don't know. I know that the, the wrestling business used to be a lot different in this regard than it is today, but it, it's just wild because it's like looking back, like what, what leverage did Hulk Hogan really have in 1997 rather like he could go to the WWF, but it's like, what were they going to do? Were they going to like push him above Steve Austin? Like, no, that wasn't going to happen at the time. So, you know what I mean? Like it, it had already become clear that like he wasn't going to be a TV star or a movie star that he was just like professionally Hulk Hogan. And that degree of just professionally being, like a C-list celebrity, hadn't really flourished into the market that it would become in the 21st century yet. Like, it is crazy to me, looking back on this window, between, say, like, 96 and 99. Like, everything when he first got there, I understand you have the fucking ticker tape parade, and you you believe, you pretend that the giant is Andre the Giant's son because you're trying to create, like, recreate the whole Hulk Hogan deal. I, like, so get that. But when you get into, like, 97, like, 98-ish era, like, what the hell were they still doing bending over backwards and catering to Hulk Hogan at that point? I know this sounds weird, but I think one of the, if not the major thing that changed the way businesses work is this idea of, or at least like public facing entertainment and sports businesses is the idea of like not so much analytics, but the level, the concept of, and this is something I've brought up in previous episodes, the concept of like replacement level and above replacement level status, if that makes sense. And I think what people didn't understand at the time was that, yeah, so you lose Hogan. You fill his time with three people that don't make everyone's lives miserable and maybe don't pull the same rating. And you try to buy, like, there are different ways that we now understand how 
popularity works, if that makes sense, and like productivity. I think there's a product. We have different ways we understand productivity. And I think Hogan benefited a lot from a lack of scientific rigor about what decisions to make for businesses in talent acquisition, if that makes sense. Like he was, he benefited from like the great man theory of sports and entertainment. Yeah, definitely. Like Hulk Hogan is wrestling. Wrestling is the thing that Hulk Hogan does. Therefore your wrestling company will be instantly identifiable as the top wrestling company because you have. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not important in the long term. You have to build a productive roster that facilitates everyone on the show doing well, because 25 people doing well is always going to be better than one person doing well because that one person, if they lose their, their, to extend the sports analogy, if they like lose their fastball, they can't, you can't keep relying on them the same way. And Hogan lost his fastball hard. It's crazy too, because like the way WCW was doing this is just like showed such a lack of understanding of wrestling fans. Anybody who has been watching wrestling for more than six months, they like appreciate the people who are there and they know who's good and they know who their favorites are. But like every wrestling fan, even the markiest mark, even the nerdiest nerd, everybody is really about discovering the next person and like watching the next person develop and get to the top and being on that journey and feeling like you know that they're a great wrestler five minutes before everybody else does, or five minutes before they even know they're a great wrestler, or five minutes before the booker knows they're a great wrestler. Like That's what everybody loves, and they did a great job giving you the wrestlers that you knew about, but when it came to the up-and-comers, there was just, like, it was so bleak. Like, I remember I was watching some of these uh, Halloween Havocs this week, and it's like you think about guys like Jericho or uh, Eddie Guerrero, and it's like they have all these great matches early on the cards of these shows but they never get any further down the card and i think that they could have continued with with some of the either using the more experienced talent and like you said just kind of reducing their tv time and spreading it out amongst some other people but i think they really could have saved themselves like in this 97 98 era if they had yeah, just, just found some way to, like, give a little hope about the next round of people. Because, I mean, like, fucking Piper and Hogan, I mean, Piper can still cut a promo uh, in spite of, I agree, all the fucking horrific homophobic places he's seen but uh, could not help but uh, go to for whatever reason. It's it's really, really hard to listen to now. But, but he definitely, the audience was into it, unfortunately. You know what I mean? Like, people are really fucking into the shit he's saying. And they still had their time. It reminds me a lot of the like idea. It's it's from an episode of uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, where John Oliver and Jerry Seinfeld talk about the fact that like the part of their brain that recognizes what's offensive is kind of broken. Like obviously, John Oliver in particular is like a sensitive person who gives a shit about people and like isn't a self completely self serving monster. But even he has this like no, there's a laugh at the end of that line of words so i have to say it and like piper's the same way he's going to say what he knows will get over and calling guys gay to a bunch of teenagers is what's going to get over and he might have personally thought it on top of that but he really knew for a fact it was going to get yeah over. there's some uh ugh, there, there there's some footage out there on youtube of, of him uh 
saying some stuff where he thinks he's talking about what a heroic family man and upstanding citizen he he is, and um, it's it's fucking disappointing. Not so, so much. Yeah, yeah, he's a. Uh... He and uh, it's really uh, what a segue. Um, what we're here for the ultimate warrior uh, oh. is really, yeah. So all of the stuff we just said about Piper, minus the fact that he was a good promo, is what you get with Warrior. And this is, as far as I am concerned, the worst match in wrestling history that somebody didn't die during, or and that like isn't the Brock Lesnar Goldberg thing where they don't actually wrestle like an actual worked match. This is, and I liked that match (laughs) is on the very, 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 very short list of worst matches of all time. I personally think it's the worst match I've ever seen. Yeah. I definitely think that like given its stakes and given the platform that they had built for it and like given the promotional push and the names on paper. Yeah. Just in terms of like, what it should have been and how much money they had tied up into it relative to what they actually got. Like it, it has to be the biggest fart in church of all time in the history of churches. Yeah. It is the biggest box office bomb to, to put it in like, like film terms. It is, it is a very, 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 very bad match that is executed poorly has the worst botched ending I can think of. <laughs> and fucking has Hogan and Warrior centered himself. Like just has Hogan go over for the sake of having Hogan go over. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Even the announcers, and to be fair to the announcers, the ending was supposed to be Hogan lights a fire paper. Like a, is that what it is? I don't even know. Flash paper. Yeah, flash paper. Yeah. Light is supposed to light a flash paper in Warrior's face, temporarily blind, temporarily blinding him, and he gets the pin. Which would be a which would be a Jerry Lawler kind of dirty baby face uh, slash character heel finish. Yes. Um. So, like so much Wiley Coyote, <laughs> Hogan lights the fucking flash paper in his own face. And ruins the ending of the match. So they go on for another like three minutes of bullshit until Eric Bischoff and Horace Hogan come out. And it's weird because obviously they botched the ending, right? And it's one of those things where that's the end spot. What the fuck are you supposed to do? So you see like Hogan vamping basically and then Horace Hogan shows up and they have this weird, like, it's almost kind of beautiful communication where he's like, oh, God, oh, thank God, you're here to save me. <laughs> like, But the the thing is supposed to be Horace Hogan had just been busted, beaten up real bad by Hulk Hogan and was here to, like, fuck with Hulk Hogan. But Hulk Hogan is so happy to see him because he knows that this is how they're ending the match that he has this, like, sigh of relief. It's almost like they left in the wrong take from a movie and, like, somebody broke, like, corpsed during a shot. Like, that's what, almost what it feels like. It's one of the, the, the times you can kind of see, like, the kayfabe of the world breaking and, like, even a professional like Hogan, like, not being able to hold his smile. 
I just want to tell you, Nick, in case if, if we're ever in the ring together and things go sideways, uh, we're just going to I'm going to give you an O'Connor roll. OK, I, just throwing I, it out there. We'll just <laughs> yeah, we'll just do an O'Connor roll. We'll get to the back safely. We'll, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> and it's and Horace hits hits a warrior with a chair to win the match. But it's just like from beginning to end, from the beginning of the storyline to the last hand going down. It's just a clusterfuck that is a waste of money, a waste of time, a waste of everybody's energy. And most importantly, I think it's the defining match of that pay-per-view because the actual main event, because it's important to note that that is not the main event. The actual main event is Goldberg versus Diamond Dallas Page in a great match, a fantastic match from beginning to end the crowd is hot as shit both guys look great goldberg goes over the crowd loses their shit but dust uh dustin but page still looks great still a championship contender i mean you could not ask for a better main event between two crazy over baby faces it is not quite, of course, but it is a similar like level of enthusiasm at a, a proportionate level of enthusiasm as like a WrestleMania six. Like the crowd is losing their mind the entire match because Goldberg is one of the most over characters in the history of wrestling. And Diamond Dallas Page is in WCW, one of the most over characters ever. Like it's really crazy. It is some like, like, uh, peak era wrestling overness and they completely lost the entire thing because they went over in the Hogan warrior match. And I think one of the other previous matches, but like they can, they lost the feed for the pay-per-view in what would have been one of the crowning achievements of that generation of wrestlers. <laughs> it is like, there are things that are outside of WCW's control, and I don't want to quite put timing your fucking show right outside of that, but you think about how much different something like that would have been now if they had a WCW network or something like that. Like, the way that, that way in which wrestling has changed is something I find really interesting, is the time constraints are, miss are, are no longer, like, as powerful, especially in terms of pay-per-views. So like, though we did see it with all in, but it's like, it ruined, it's one of the major death knells of the company. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, they, they put on, as you say, a great and satisfying main event. They do that little 10 minute magic where, you know, that you, you can put two guys out there who you don't need either one of them to be the greatest wrestler in the world. But if they're both over and they both know how to do their shit and they're both enthusiastic about doing a good job and doing it right you can have a really fucking good match. And that that's definitely what they got. And then they kind of had to, I don't want to say lessen the specialness of it, because in some ways it made it more special. But the fact that they had to show it on free TV the next night, you know what I mean? It, it was good in that it, it gave the people a taste of, you know, they, they got to see the good match. If they hadn't ordered the pay-per-view, right? Those people didn't see Hogan and Warrior. They just saw that great main event on TV the next day. But I think it definitely kind of, undermined the whole specialness of the pay-per-views and, and was a, a, a big link in the chain towards them falling apart. Cause going back to the late eighties, like we talked about in the last episode, like when dusty was first kind of writing out the strategy, like what's the pay-per-view strategy, 
you know, what was the thing? It was like, make sure that the pay-per-views are really special shows where people are seeing stuff that they don't see on free TV and that they're not seeing at the house shows. Yeah. And this, uh, like these two are both Quintus is like, like essential viewing just to see how good Goldberg and diamond Dallas page are like, it is worth watching those diamond Dallas page is a fucking amazing, like a, the wrestling equivalent of like a Steve Buscemi where he's like a great character actor that is enough of a good screen, great screen presence that he like transcends that, but not exactly, which is why he's like crazy popular in WCW. He is like a WCW um, featured player, like of the WCW repertoire or whatever, but he's not quite transcendent. And Goldberg is the most transcendent like athlete wrestler I can think of like the, between the two of them, it really is like this special mix. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, those are the two, the two truly great, truly WCW main eventers, right? Because I mean, especially after they transitioned to Turner and especially, especially after Bischoff took over, like they really didn't have a clue about creating anybody new. Like I was saying earlier, they were really bad at giving you hope about the next guy who was in the pipeline. It would make you a little more forgiving of some of the older guys stuff. Right. But this was the closest they ever came to, to being able to show off. Like here's this holy WCW wrestler. Here's this other holy WCW wrestler. And they're going to be having a match that you've never seen before in the WWF. You know what I mean? That, that actually means something special to these fans that none of the other matches that have, you know, wrestlers who establish their name somewhere else in them have. And uh, though for me, and I think for you, Booker and Scott Steiner came close, it's really important to note that the last Halloween Havoc, the second to last match is... Booker T versus Scott Steiner for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And the last match is Goldberg versus Chronic, and, I, and we mentioned this earlier, in a two-on-one handicap elimination match. Like, Goldberg is the biggest star in the history of WCW uh, in terms of homegrown talent by a lot. Like, Goldberg is a... He beat Brock Lesnar. Like, that was not a coincidence. It wasn't an accident. Goldberg is one of... He's the guy where if WCW would have lasted, he'd be one of the great stars in the history of wrestling and not just a guy that got molten for a couple of years. Like, he main-evented a shit ton of shows for them. He was a really important character, and he was crazy bananas road warriors over and i think this match really between on on that side and with diamond dallas page's just ability to work a great work and call a great like match for the guy he's in the ring with it was just like he is savage-esque and i think for both of them it's one of their strongest matches i think it's goldberg's probably his best actual match. And I think it's one of diamond Dallas pages, diamond Dallas pages, best matches though. I think diamond Dallas page in terms of like, not the greatest worker, but a great performer, like a great professional wrestler. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. You compared page to Savage because those are the two wrestlers. People always talk about uh, 
when they they describe them kind of being the innovators of the way wrestling has changed and that they were some of the first guys to like really really plan everything out and make everything highly structured and while the match was you know called in the ring getting the next thing in the next ring they were they were never figuring out the next thing in the ring they, they already knew ahead of time and i think that as we saw during his recent wwe kind of hall of fame stint that's what goldberg was really good at like goldberg was not an nwa style wrestler in the way that like flair or Arn Anderson, or any of those guys we were talking about in the first half of the show really were. Like, he was a guy who had explosive athleticism, who had the intrigue of the fans, like, really had that wave of support on his side, and who was a larger-than-life figure. But um, he, like, wasn't good at knowing what to do if the guy, uh, you know, slipped and crotched himself trying to leapfrog you. But when you put him out there with someone like Paige, I think it was just the perfect marriage of the guy who needed a lot of support and the guy who was obsessive about providing support. And I think that's really why it worked. Yeah. Uh, so you have both of these. Do you have the the the, the Warrior Hogan match as an essential view? Because I think we both agree. Like this Goldberg Diamond Dallas Page is absolute match is absolutely a match you should check out. But should the people? sit through Hogan warrior, or do you think they can just skip to the last cup? Cause I feel like you have to, it's one of those things where you kind of have to drink the smoke, the whole pack of cigarettes. But like, if you have asthma, you don't have to, <laughs> I, I don't know how else to just like, it, it is a very bad match that doesn't have a lot of charm to it, but I think you need to be to see it to see how bad wrestling can actually get before you start complaining online about like how you didn't like a match that didn't go the way you wanted. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I hear you. Um, yeah, I agree that uh, that it, it, it is an essential viewing match in its own way, both in the history of Halloween Havoc and the history of WCW to to see the way those things kind of fell apart, but also just like generally as a meditation on wrestling, like. I would set aside, you know, a couple hours for yourself. Maybe if you have a favorite beverage or if or a particular kind of cigarette, uh, you you could sit down and you could watch the WrestleMania six match, and then immediately afterwards you could put on this match. And I think that that would teach you a lot uh, about the parts of wrestling that don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, so I, I think we uh, got through a decent amount of the... I think uh, there's a couple of... I think you should... Everybody should watch, and we talked about it in the first half of the episode, the first Halloween Havoc. And I think you should definitely take a chance to check out all the matches we mentioned, uh, including the Eddie Guerrero match. There's also from the Chamber of Horrors pay-per-view, which I think is the third Halloween Havoc, there is a Bobby Eaton Terrence Taylor match that I strongly strongly recommend uh anytime and anytime you see dustin Rhodes and steve austin yeah, you have to i think they they work together two or three halloween havocs in a row so definitely try to check those out um and for this week's question uh, it's a simple one would halloween havoc work now hell yeah <laughs> I mean, in especially in the WWE, it, it's one of the WCW properties that I can't believe they've let lapse. I was actually doing a little research before the show, and supposedly uh, the mark is not protected. It, it's fallen back into into public domain. But uh, but but uh, yeah, I can't believe that they tried to keep the Great American Bash slash the Bash and didn't do Halloween Havoc. I think it's right in their wheelhouse of you know of, of fun and entertainment and and doing theme shows like. 
I could see Halloween Havoc like not being a pay-per-view, but maybe being like a super house show like they do for Starcade and then like maybe broadcasting it on the yes. network. Like I could definitely see that. Especially yeah, because yeah, that's what actually what made me think of the this idea. They are actually WWE is working on a a truncated or skeleton production crew that will allow them to film and disseminate house shows on a much quicker timeline. I don't think they're going to need nearly as much lead time. They may even be able to do it live. So I could see them doing like Starcade, for example, like you mentioned, they've done Starcade or they did Starcade last year. And I think they're doing it again this year or that might've already passed. And they could also do Halloween Havoc as a fun thing to go to that where everybody dresses up and stuff like that and doesn't have the gravitas of an actual pay-per-view where things are actually happening. It's kind of like the, tra- the, the thing, and we kind of hinted at this last week uh, is like, it's, it's almost like having a murder at a costume party where it's an actual costume party and like not a masquerade. So you have all of the like weird juxtaposition of people and like sad people in weird outfits. It's like people are getting brutalized and the shit beat out of them. And like Missy Hyatt's in like a Cleopatra outfit. Like it doesn't fit at all. And I I think like they could lessen some of that by making it what you're talking about, like a super house show that they put on the network. That's just like a fun thing. Or even like a special episode of SmackDown or raw, they could bring back Halloween havoc. And I think it would work Uh, there. I, I definitely think Halloween havoc works much 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 better now than it did past the first couple of years when it was a theme before it got into like coal miners glove and then hogan like i think in the first couple of years if they would have kept that like perfect balance of spooky but also like guys in tux like the announcers were in tuxedos for two of the first three i think and then they start to just go full-blown like it's halloween and i think that's instead of having a halloween set with a couple of people dressed up strategically they went like oh it's a halloween party and i think that would work now but it did not work when they first did it yeah you know what one thing i want to throw out there too is that this year i'm always fucking stumping for these people what the hell i got to start asking for some money uh, MLW did a show this year. It actually aired the night that we're recording this, uh, last Friday night. Sorry, kayfabe shattering, kayfabe shattering. Uh, but uh, last Friday night, they did a special edition of MLW Fusion that they called Fright Night, and like one, of, it was it was matches that were taped at the New York show uh, last month, or sorry, no, at the beginning of this month. But uh, I mean, they did a spin the wheel, make the deal match between Jimmy Havoc and Sammy Callahan. And um, they also did some kind of monster theme stuff with like LA Park der- der versus PCO. So I would say that MLW a little bit maybe has has decided to pick up this torch. So I I recommend you check it out. <laughs> um, so did you have anything to plug this week or just your Twitter account? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as normal, uh, my Twitter account, which is at Dave Writes Junk. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll have some exciting news about something I've, I've maybe hinted at a couple of times here, but uh, I've got a, a new story that's approaching completion and it is wrestling related. So I'm really excited to tell people more about that, hopefully very, very soon. Uh, if you're intrigued to learn the deets, just make sure you follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Also, I never remember to say this, but you should really follow the podcast brand as well at H-W-E-T-W-Pod. Um, it's the quickest way to know when the shows drop because the links get posted there first. And it's just kind of your one-stop hub for all things show. So if you if you don't want to 
hear me, you know, uh, if you don't want to see Nick and I talking liberal politics, you can just follow the at HWETW pod account and, you know, get most of the good news there. But leftist politics, not, I'm, I'm not, a, no. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I, I'm sorry. There's always all these Twitter debates about like liberal versus progressive versus, uh, ugh. I, Liberals I, I, are third way Democrats, basically at this point. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, Clinton, tri- triangulation. You like a uh, third way is that the Republicans and the Democrats are both idiots. So let's do it a third way. Oh, weird, weird. I'm winking really hard oh, at you right okay. now. Sorry, I, I was hoping you could see it from New Hampshire. <laughs> I guess not. Uh, no, no, sorry, I'm bad. I'm guess uh, yeah, lefty, whatever the whatever the fucking sexy term is now. Yeah, so speaking of of which, uh, you can check me out at The Nixter, that's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R, and you can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. You can also check us out on Stitcher, Spreaker, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Um, and, uh, we have an announcement. You may have noticed that we never got the Parks and Rec video up. Uh, that is because... My fears came true and the uh, ability for me to upload that video with any Parks and Rec footage was going to be basically impossible. Uh, Every time I tried it, it got rejected. So uh, we actually, because of that, we talked a little bit and we have decided that we're going actually to be, to avoid having to worry about copyrights and things like that, are going to be changing the format of our videos a decent amount. Um, We're going to be doing something less than the like weird clip show style while we're going to be doing something more presented uh, so that we can not worry about fair use clips. Uh, And those will be premiering in the beginning of January, the first week of January, we will start posting those. Also along the same lines, we will actually uh, in the next couple of weeks, probably around Thanksgiving, to be honest, be announcing a evolution of our podcast. Um, Empire is a very strong word. Uh, We will be adding something to the family of podcasts uh, that you will be finding out about. We have to work out some of the kinks and decide exactly what we want to do. But uh, I think you're all going to be really excited about it. um, Or at least some of you will be really excited about it. And uh, it's something I'm definitely looking forward to telling everybody about in the coming weeks. So uh, yeah, have that to look forward to have Dave's thing to look forward to hopefully and you will have the new videos to look forward to and uh next week's topic which you can find out about in dave's follow-up files um speaking of follow-up files uh dave did you have any updates on pocket casts this week you know what i actually uh it seems like we are getting noticed for the great evangelism that we're doing really spreading the word about pocket cast i actually got a personal email earlier this week from the CEO of Pocket Cast. His name is Herb Pocket Cast. And uh, he just wanted to call and thank me, uh, you know, personally. And it seems like they may be sponsoring the show in the coming weeks. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Big shout out to Herb. Fight your-